doing it <laughs> i had everything else ready oh whatever <laughs> you know me i'm late by default <laughs> on everything we um <sighs> we went to i like how i'm just starting this conversation like we've already said hello hi yeah, we did. hi <laughs> jasmine says hi rachel that's me got a nose piercing today anya's gonna be screaming throughout this whole thing nice. she's in a mood today yeah, she's been in the mood she's all day. Okay. Rad. And a tattoo consultation. <laughs> yeah. Which I'm really excited for. Um, What's the call you're getting again? Oh, it's on my phone. Um, <laughs> you don't even know it. <laughs> I do. Like, I'm going to paraphrase it off the top of my head. If you've read A Game of Thrones. <laughs> a Game of Thrones. <laughs> a Game of Thrones. Song of Ice and Fire. Yeah, but if you've actually read the first book, which is called A Game of Thrones. Oh, okay. Um, the very last line in the book, the line that closes the book out is, and for the first time in hundreds of years, the world came alive with the music of dragons. Yes. Yes. So oh, I'm getting go that. Dragons. Yes. With Daenerys' is little, her three dragons. Oh yeah. So, um, I sent her the colors too. One's black and red, one's black and green, and the other's black and gold. We're both going to have dragons now. Yeah. Tattooed on our bodies. Yes. <laughs> Hell yeah. But yeah, so that that was today um, before this, which, by the way, you were listening to Difficult oh, yeah. Damsels. Okay. I'm Rachel, which I already said. But yeah. That's Jasmine. That's Jasmine. Jasmine? Jasmine. Jasmine. I got a new Jasmine. I didn't even know it. <laughs> um, you are listening to a podcast about badass and sometimes problematic yeah. women from history. <laughs> if you've been listening to our Catherine de' Medici episodes. But if you think about it, they're demonized for the shit they do, but hundreds and hundreds of men have done the same thing and yeah. they're heroes. And I mean, some of them are heroes. Some of them are, but <laughs> you're well, no, the terrible from Russia. It gets ignored when it's done sometimes by men but then when women do it oh my god they're terrible and evil well i think the thing with catherine de medici that we're learning is you know she's she's remembered for the the big event we covered in the last episode which was the saint bartholomew's day massacre she's she's remembered for that one moment in time yeah and then everything else is just null and void and as we try to do with this podcast we try to give you a context for everything which is why it took three episodes (laughs) to build up to To that here yeah exactly (laughs) So where are we, Rachel, in this saga? We are on (laughs) Catherine de' Medici part four, and this will be the conclusion. This will be the fall of the Valois dynasty. (laughs) We already talked. There was a prophecy. There were faces in a mirror. That's true. We know how this story ends. Can't we be like, what the fuck's his name? And just ignore the prophecy and die anyway? (laughs) Who did that? Her first husband. Oh, Henry. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Henry. <laughs> so many. Hen- okay. So I'm going to apologize. Disclaimer. Off right now. <laughs> for two <laughs> things <laughs> that nobody called me out on, but I'm going to apologize yet Are again. Are you going to apologize for speaking French? Yeah. Without being able to speak French? <laughs> French. 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 
I was talking to um, my aunt Madison. Hi. <laughs> I don't think I sent it to you, but she sent me a video on how to pronounce. You pronounce. Pronounce. <laughs> Are you okay? <laughs> how to pronounce Irish words? Did I send that? Yeah, to you? you did. Okay. You did. <laughs> um, Gaelic words, which was actually very helpful. Then I was like, "Do you have anything like that for French words?" And she was like. Yeah, no. You just go like ha 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 at the <laughs> end of every <laughs> French word. That's awful. <laughs> or or like say each word like you have phlegm in the back of your throat. I was like, that's pretty much what I do. So Me every day, so I don't even know. <laughs> but yeah, so there's gonna be more mm-hmm. French words, and I'm gonna butcher them. Um, but I, another friend was telling me he listened to the episode. He was like, oh, I had no idea. That's not how you pronounce it. You sound so confident. And I was like, good, it's a <laughs> lie. What the? F- I've been telling you this entire podcast as long as you're confident when you no one's gonna question it well that's what i told him and sorry I, I didn't mean to scream i've been going with it so apparently it's working yeah yeah it's fine don't listen to your wife listen to your random friend it's fine um, thanks random friend for giving our i sent boost. him it's his he's a pisces his birthday's coming up in i think two days happy, happy birthday, birthday drizzy oh there it is <laughs> hey you enunciated this time so there's no question <laughs> um i hope you enjoyed the baby plushy ostrich that i sent you because he's terrified of big birds that's fair they're scary they are i've seen videos i've seen videos um of ostrich yeah, they are yeah and he's had some traumatic experiences so oh i remember you said that and i was like how in the fuck does a person have a traumatic experience with an ostrich does he live in like australia where do ostriches live australia no i, I don't know just they're, like they're in Africa? zoos oh shit I, I, <laughs> There is zoo. He saw he saw the ostriches in like a um habitat. Now I want to know ostriches. You know, there's an ostrich emu farm on the way to Tucson. No, I didn't. Yeah, I go, I drive by it every time I go out there, and I'm let's, like, oh, I want to go. Let's go there. It's a really far drive to go, but we'll go. I mean, we can go to Tucson and then stop along the way. Nobody just goes to Tucson for fun. I've never been. Yeah, it's much. <laughs> we go for the ostriches. We stay. We stay for the Tucson. No, no one stays for Tucson. Actually, it's really beautiful. Yeah, that's what I've heard. Well, certain areas are really beautiful. It's just something I've always wanted to do. Yeah. It's really beautiful at 6 o'clock in the morning. You want to cry. <laughs> Why would I be up at 6 o'clock in the morning? I'm not saying you were. I'm saying I had to be there at 6 o'clock in the morning, which means I had to be on the road at 4 o'clock in the morning. It was great. It was great. Oh, because you, yeah. Yeah, and I drove in the rain, but it was actually really pretty because it was like there were still clouds, but the sun was coming out. And it was like super crystal. I love it when the sun comes out. It's very beautiful, especially yeah, when we're talking about the sun. The sun. Out. You can't yeah, see you it. Get the hands but I'm I'm gesticulating. <laughs> um, when it like the sun breaks through the clouds and you're driving and it's just like oh my spirit feels so uplifted. Yeah. Well, Jasmine's well, playing with a catnip mouse. Oh, little babushka. When I say playing, I mean she's literally just rubbing her face on it. <laughs> As you do. And she will drool. There will be a pile of drool over there. Don't go over there. <laughs> well, if you have not listened to Catherine de' Medici parts one through three, um, stop this right now and go do that. What I mean, you, you doing could probably you listen right now, but like, it will be very confusing. <laughs> you will be very confused. Oh, the second thing I was apologizing for is oh, yeah. this is the episode of Catherine and the Many Henrys. <laughs> so um, I will be mostly referring to them by their titles for that reason mm-hmm. i'll mention their name once um but the the three main henry's of this episode beautiful <laughs> can you see it oh it's great that's all the henry's so we have king henry 
the third, who we'll be getting to very, very shortly here. That was the Duke of Anjou from the last episode, the one that like was all fanatical and shot Louis de Condé in the back of the head. Was that it's Catherine's, Catherine's kid? Yes, okay. it's her second. It's Charles's the brother after Charles. Okay. Um, we have Henry of Navarre, the King of Navarre. So we'll call him Navarre. Okay. And that is Catherine's daughter, Margot's husband. So Margot and oh, Navarre. Oh, is that from the wedding? From the wedding. Yeah, they just got married yes. in the middle of a massacre? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, that's episode three. Go listen. Yeah, please. <laughs> and then we have Henry de Guise, the Duke of Guise. So this was Francois de Guise's son. Remember Francois de Guise nope. from episode two? Was the annoying uncle of Mary's? Ah, yes. 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 So are the Guise. Do, are you going to call him the Duke of Guise, hopefully? Yes. Okay. I'll call him Guise. <laughs> okay. There are other Guises, though. There's too many Guise. It's a thing. Stop it. <laughs> um, we have. Okay, so I may as well discuss the rest of the <laughs> players in this episode. Um, we'll talk a little bit about the Cardinal de Bourbon. He is Henry of Navarre's uncle, and he's Catholic. Didn't. Wasn't there a de bourbon earlier? There's been many bourbons. Okay. That's fair. <laughs> we have the Duke of Alençon. That is Catherine's youngest son, who we will talk about this episode. Um, and we also have... I think I'm missing somebody important. <laughs> You're drawing. Oh, I tried to draw the Eiffel Tower. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> it's... Really bad. Great. <laughs> it's so bad I can't draw. What? I don't I don't know if we ever put this. Did we put this on the Facebook page? We'll have to put it on the Facebook page so you can see what <laughs> a fabulous is a hard whoops. <laughs> what a fabulous artiste I am. Yeah. I'm gonna put your original one too. But yeah, so um as far as the last episode went, uh Charles is king in France, that's Catherine's son. St. Bartholomew's Day Massacre happened um, because all of the Huguenots were brought in thanks to Henry of Navarre and Margot of Valois' wedding. It was the um, union of Catholic and Huguenot France. It was France. supposed to be great, turned out to be not great. It turned out to be bad. Shitty. <laughs> yes. And a lot of people died. Yeah. Like a lot of people died. Like, like, yeah. A lot. Yeah. yeah. So, what was the number again? Um, say like 30 or 40,000. So as it could have been as high as 70,000 contemporary uh, historians, they put it anywhere between 10 and 30,000. Yeah, oh, that's not great. it's not. That's and like innocent um, people too. This isn't like a war that was fought. It was innocent people. Those people died. dragged out of their beds in yeah. Paris and yeah. into the street. Yeah. So yeah. Anyway. <laughs> Shit. <laughs> so we're, no, I mean, it's good we talked about it because I'm going to pick up right from the aftermath of the St. Bartholomew's Day Massacre. So following the events that came to be known as the... St. Bartholomew's Day Massacre? And it, it was called that. Do you remember that, so Do you remember why it was called? Because it was a feast day? Yes. Yeah. St. Bartholomew's Day. I remember day. asking that. Yeah. I don't think the answer would be simple, but I asked it anyway. <laughs> So it would take several months for the country to return to any state of normalcy. Surprise, surprise. Yeah. Everyone's like, fuck, that was bad. <laughs> In the immediate days following the massacre, once it was safe for the royal family to leave the palace, it, it wasn't safe yeah, for many a day. <laughs> I would hope so. <laughs> Charles and Catherine set off on a new propaganda campaign to justify portions of the massacre. Oh, you're going to justify that. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yep. Great. Let's hear it. 
So everything we hear about, like the justifications, it, it comes directly from their mouths. So Great. they focus specifically on the sanctioned assassinations of the Huguenot leadership. And to justify the act, they claim that they had to act preemptively to prevent their own murders. That's literally everyone's answer to their mm-hmm. murders. <laughs> yep. From here on out, Catherine would forever be regarded as the maligned enemy of the Huguenot party. Yeah. She knew she would bear the responsibility of their enmity for the rest of her days. People now openly called Catherine de' Medici the Black Queen and the New Jezebel. This was in her own time, like wow. whispering behind her back. I just they also she wasn't the only person who did it, but anyway. Oh yeah, so <laughs> one of the most colorful and disgusting um, oh, no. descriptions labeled for her was the maggot from Italy's tomb. Wow, yeah, that's rude. Catherine swallowed this new fate, understanding her reputation would be forever blackened, and she settled into it. The various courts around Europe praised or condemned the massacre in occurrence with their own religious sensibilities. Literally, if you praise a fucking massacre, you are not a religious person. Well, Spain (laughs) and Rome and the Pope all praised it, and King Philip II even supposedly performed a little jig in celebration. Wow. Yeah. I'm going to keep my mouth shut for a lot of reasons. (laughs) So England and then the Protestant princes of Germany and what is now modern day Switzerland were utterly appalled and disgusted because they were human. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry. Yes. (laughs) And then when Admiral Gaspar de Coligny's body was eventually recovered, it is said that he was decapitated and his head was delivered to Catherine. According to the sources, she had it embalmed and then sent to the Pope in Rome. What the fuck? What is wrong with people? Sorry. We're back. I'm fine. (laughs) I mean, we're just starting the episode. I know! (laughs) Um, The two survivors of the Huguenot leadership were Henry of Navarre and his cousin... Henry of... Henry the Prince of Conde. Okay. (laughs) These are the two Bourbon Princes of the Blood. Um, so they are alive, but they are forced to convert to Catholicism on pain of death. That's not how that works. Catherine famously <clears throat> broke her infamous composure during the ceremony and laughed out loud at the so-called display of hypocrisy from the two Huguenot princes. Oh, from them? Mm-hmm. Hypocrisy from yeah. them? Mm-hmm. You're fu- Okay. <laughs> oh my god. How are you doing? I'm, it's fine. We're like... Not even 15 minutes in. (laughs) Mind you, I am coming off of watching Vikings Valhalla, and that's all it is, is Christianity bullshit. Near dare. Near dare. Yes. For your religious views. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Great. So a couple of months after the events of the St. Bartholomew's Day Massacre, um, completely random, but not for our story, the Polish throne suddenly found itself vacant. So several princes and what? second sons around Europe, the, the throne of Pro- Poland, Poland, Poland. No, yeah. I got that. Oh, because they died in the massacre? No, it's just somebody died and didn't have any heirs. Oh, that's unfortunate. And so basically what happens is a power vacuum and you have all these princes and these second sons of Europe scheming to have themselves voted as the new king. So France presented Henry, the Duke of Anjou, as their candidate. Given the fact that Charles was still young and people had every reason to believe he would produce an heir, the Duke of Anjou made a good candidate. Um, it was also kind of good to get him out of there because, again, they had their own rivalry. Yeah. 
So this is the one who was forced to convert. No, no. this is one of Catherine's kids. Okay. They're already Catholic. Yeah, this this will be our king. Okay. This will be King Henry. Oh. We will call him Henry. Okay. Yeah. So okay. he he is Henry. So she's one of her kids. <laughs> Fuck. He's one of Catherine's kids. Yeah. Okay. So it goes. It went Francis, who's dead. Yeah. Another dead son, Ooh. Charles, Henry. Okay. Yeah. Great. Glad we got that one cleared up. <laughs> There's five sons. There's no, too I know. many. It's just this... <laughs> so. Duke of Anjou, our Henry, and he will be our, our Henry for this episode. Our Henry. We're claiming as, him as ours. <laughs> so he was a deeply devout and fervent Catholic, often considered a champion of the faith due to his zeal in exterminating Protestants. Again, remember Louis de Condé. And I'm really yeah. glad that that's your title and that's what you're excited about. Yeah. yeah. Well, it's going to change. Um, oh. He also posed this really interesting juxtaposition of effeminacy and fanatical reverence. So basically, you have this man who loves fashion, loves dances, loves all the pageantry that's Mm -hmm. usually considered feminine. Mm -hmm. But he's also deeply religious and devout to the point where um, he will resort to self-harm like flagellation to show his devotion. Yes. He's one of those. So that's, that is Henry. Um, Henry is also notoriously Catherine's favorite son. A lot of the sources remark that he actually, because of his interest in like fashion and, and art and court politics and pageantry, he's, he's more Italian than he is French. So he takes more after his mother and she, she adores him. Yeah. Before leaving, Charles had officially named Henry as his heir, because again, Charles doesn't have any kids yet that are legitimate. Charles is the current king? Yes. Okay. Charles the Ninth. Okay. This was done in part to circumvent their very ambitious and already scheming younger brother, Francis, the oh, Duke of Alençon. Fuck on! <laughs> Remember how she renamed her youngest son Francis? I, I do recall yeah. that. So now Alençon is like a late teenager he's like 18 or 19 wait so we're scheming to have this henry put on the polish throne but he's also the heir to the english throne you mean the french throne Shit. Yeah. <laughs> yes a throne another throne yes <laughs> and that's gonna be a cool. thing that comes into play soon <laughs> great i'm glad that we're all just trying to we're like hungry hungry mm-hmm. hippos with <laughs> yes 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 this is Jesus. the age of um musical thrones <laughs> As it so happened, Henry would not remain in Poland for very long. Charles would end up dying on May 30th, 1574, just two years after the St. Bartholomew's Day Massacre. How um, old is he? Do I even dare ask? 23. Whoa. Yep. Okay. So the last couple of years of Charles's life were deeply unpleasant. Um, already prone to sickness, his health deteriorated quickly, and his mental state followed suit. Yep, many believe the events of the massacre would go on to haunt him and contribute to his mental state. Because a lot of the leadership that died, they were his friends. Good, I'm glad he suffered for what he did. (laughs) He was also suffering from tuberculosis, and towards the end, he was both coughing up blood and emitting blood from his sweat whenever he was feverish. What? Yeah, it's tuberculosis. I know you cough up blood, but I didn't know you sweat blood. Yeah, it's it's like the sweating sickness, and yeah, it's gross. I mean, I knew you sweat, but I didn't know you sweated blood. That's interesting. Yep, I'm I'm intrigued. Okay. To make matters worse, his youngest brother had teamed up with Henry of Navarre. Francois? Francis? 
Fresco? Francesca? <laughs> no, this is Henry of Navarre. Fuck! <laughs> Navarre. Um, he also oh. teamed up with the Prince of Conde and other Huguenot leaders to try and usurp from his mother and the Guise faction, um, usurp power from them in anticipation of his brother's death. So he could be the heir and then the king. Great. Mm-hmm. Cool. Alanson suffered from what we like to call a case of too many sons syndrome. <laughs> As the fifth son of Catherine's large brood, there was very little in the way of territory and titles left to him. Even before Charles had died, Alanson was already scheming to have himself name the heir in place of his older brother, the Duke of Anjou, Henry. Um, if Henry was the favorite son, Alanson had the misfortune of being the least favorite son. Oh my god. Wait. Are they both Henry's? Francis and Henry. Okay, I was like, wait a minute. <laughs> oh. uh, but good question, because everybody Shit. else in this episode is I was named like, Henry. wait, wait, wait. <laughs> okay, so the little brother trying to get power from his older brother. Yeah, and the trying to... The oldest brother died. Trying to skip the middle brother, basically. I, I, uh, yeah, that's rude. <laughs> As a middle child, that's rude. <laughs> um. You can't just do that. During Charles's last months... I mean, he does have a Polish throne. He doesn't need a French throne. You get one! <laughs> During Charles's last months, Alanson organized another attempted coup, reminiscent of the attempted coup that attempted to physically capture the royal family during the early years of Charles. Do you remember that? Sort of, kind of, but not really. That's what made Catherine... happened since. So do you remember... So Charles was still a child... Um, Catherine had been warned that the Huguenots were trying to organize a coup and she kept ignoring uh, yeah. it. Yeah. Alan does the same exact thing. But unlike the first attempted coup, Alan Sohn was far less cunning. His associates did not understand the concept of discretion and it oh pretty God. much became an open secret that they, they were trying like they walk in the to court usurp room and they're the like, We're going to usurp you, but you don't know. <laughs> so when the courtiers were forced to oh. flee, court for Paris yet again Catherine entered her carriage grim-faced and annoyed and she basically dragged along Alanson and Navarre by their ears and um, it was like a really awkward and painfully silent carriage ride oh. she's not scared anymore she's just annoyed she's just pissed off yeah and, like angry moms across from you in the carriage and you're like touching her knees and you're just like fuck we're gonna die but she's not she's not yelling at you it's dead silent which is fucking scarier yeah yes <laughs> So by the time Charles had fallen ill, um, and he's on his deathbed at this point, both Alan Sohn and Navarre had been imprisoned, um, luxuriously imprisoned, yeah. very comfortably. Princes just, in the tower are imprisoned, except mm, they didn't disappear? Yes. Okay. <laughs> just, they're under house arrest, basically. Great. So while he's on his deathbed, he calls Catherine into the room along with Alan Sohn and Navarre, and then... Um, and he says, get your shit together? <laughs> No, he's just, he's setting everything to sort so he can gotcha. prepare for a smooth so transition. So the entire family can fuck it all up. Well, yeah. So he's <laughs> like, Henry is my heir. You're going to have to recall him from Poland. Um, the other thing I haven't really mentioned is that since the events of the massacre, the relationship between Charles and Catherine has completely deteriorated. Well, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And he's also been trying to like get out from under her his shadow. Dumb. Yeah. <laughs> unsuccessfully also that massacre yeah. happened because of his mother and brother's scheming yes his so the brother that's about to be the king of france <laughs> great i'm so happy that that's a thing 
In his final moments, Catherine and Charles drew up a will that once again named Henry as the next king and herself as the regent in France so that she could hold it until Henry returned from Poland. Basically, so she can secure everything so yeah. Alan Soane can. She's a like, placeholder. Yeah, exactly. They both had Alan Soane and Navarre witness his signature. Charles then embraced Navarre as a brother, crying over previous ills committed and merely admitting to the fact that Catherine tried to have Navarre killed during the St. Bartholomew's Day Massacre. She basically, she was like, shh, 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 Despite the tension between mother and son, his last words had been, adieu, ma mère, eh, ma mère, which is basically, goodbye, my mother, oh, my mother. Hmm. Having already secured her position in the new government that would form under her son, soon to be Henry III of France, Catherine allowed herself the rare moment to grieve in full earnest, and she cried at her son's bedside as he took his last painful breaths of life. How many kids has she buried? Shit. Almost all of them. Jesus. She's well, down. I do feel bad for that part of her life, yeah. but that's about the only thing she gets from me right now. That's the tragedy of Catherine de yeah. Medici. She outlives almost all of them. That's insane. Yeah. I mean, that is the, the crutch of being royal. Yes. <laughs> Meanwhile. The crutch, the crux. The crux. Yeah. The crutch, the crux. crux. <laughs> the curse. Yeah, there we go. <laughs> Meanwhile, back in Poland... The new king of France had to be informed that he was, in fact, now the king of France. Guess what? King Poland, you're now the king of France. <laughs> so Henry behaved like a moody teenager when he first arrived in Poland because he didn't want to go. Like, the Polish were weird. He's like, they're weird. I don't get them. The Polish don't get me. Like, why am I here? Maybe it's because you're a murderer. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> um, he had refused to greet his new Polish nobles. Um, that might make it weird. For several months. Oh, my God. <laughs> he pretended to be well, sick. Well, it's me. He, pre he pretended to be sick. But I'm not going to say. <laughs> yeah, I can't come into work today. You're the king. Yeah, no. I'm you hear sick. that? It's... I'm going to have to be in my room. Sorry. Uh, you got this from here. <laughs> well, now he finally had an opportunity to go back home. So you basically have this whole thing where the Polish are like. He's like a ghost in the castle. Are you leaving us? Like, you can't leave. You're the king. And he's like, no. But like, <laughs> like, like, I'm going to come I do. <laughs> so. <laughs> So um, on the night, the night he leaves, he invites the whole Polish nobility to witness him to go to sleep. Because again, they're like, we we know you're gonna abscond the second. <laughs> to witness him go to sleep, I'm just really calm on that. <laughs> just stand here, everyone, circle the bed, watch so me he goes to sleep. fall into my slumber. <laughs> and he's very theatrical, so that's probably what he sounds. Oh like. my god! You make a perfect Henry. <laughs> That's not a compliment. <laughs> Once they were satisfied he was asleep. Oh, I'm going to bed now. They leave the room and then that's when he steals away in the middle of the night. But not before stealing the crowns from. Stop it. The Polish. These are mine. Yeah, he steals the Polish crowns. What the fuck? I mean, he's technically the Polish king. So is it stealing? Yeah. Oh, okay. <laughs> Take a country's crowns from like. But he's king jewels from but they get passed along from king to king they just hit my front door that was really creepy anyway i think it was just a ghost it's oh, fine <laughs> henry's like fuck you anyway um uh, he ends up he he makes this like mad dash across poland and just he's imagine him like aggressively snoring pretending to <laughs> not you well, not you i'm sneezing now 
He makes a mad dash. He's chased the entire time. Like if they catch him, they're going to drag him back. So it's just like. By the ear probably. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but he does end up escaping Poland. Um, and once he's out of danger, he took the time to write the following to Catherine. While he's in danger. <laughs> no, it was. It was once he like, he like stepped over the board. And he's like, I'm good. <laughs> yeah. Because the board is like an imaginary magical line. You can't get past it. <laughs> So he wrote to Catherine, I am your son and have always obeyed you, and I resolve to devote myself more to you than ever before. France and you are worth more than Poland. I shall always remain your devoted servant. That's um, very aggressive. Remember, this is her favorite No, I know, but like, (laughs) it's very aggressive. (laughs) Like, he's already pretty devoted to her. So he wrote this letter while he was in Vienna, visiting the Holy Roman Emperor Maximilian II. Maximilian treated the new French king to a big feast, and before leaving Vienna, Maximilian offered some advice to Henry regarding the religious unrest in his country. Oh, God, I bet this is going to be great. It actually is pretty good advice. (laughs) (laughs) He basically just counsels Henry to let both Catholicism and the new Protestant religion coexist in peace together. Weird. What a concept. What the fuck? Um, Maybe don't murder any more people, asshole. You got enough checks in your fat box, okay? And he... The thing about Maximilian, at least at this point, I don't know too much about him. So yeah. if this changes, uh, yeah. <laughs> but he was basically saying this is what this is the policy we adopted here yeah. in Vienna, and it's been working. Yeah, no one's died. How weird. Following his stay in Vienna, Henry was gifted with a golden carriage that took him to the sea, where several gondolas were waiting to carry the new French king in style, first to Venice and then finally to France. Are you fucking kidding me? A golden carriage. By the end of the trip, Henry was more in debt than he had been when he started the journey. Um, so the other thing about Henry oh, is no. he's very generous uh, with the people he likes and his favorites. Like he just he just hands gems and oh jewels. my god, I would just, smooch the shit out of this guy. Like, hey, what's up, yes. best, cool best friend? A you lot of some of that. A lot of people that just randomly like walk by him in the street, they he would give them a ruby and they would be covered for life. Um, so he he gives away all the Polish. Oh Brown my god! <laughs> um, the Polish come and collect him, and he's like, "Oh shit, yeah." Um. <laughs> Random little fact: two years after Henry's flight from Poland, the next Polish king was elected, and he was Stephen Bathory, the king of Transylvania. What? This is Elizabeth Bathory's uncle. Oh hell yeah! She is fifteen years old at this point oh, in the story. No. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Go back to episode one. Hey, full <laughs> circle. <laughs> Want to learn about her. <laughs> anyway, so Henry finally arrives on French soil three months later, where the royal family greeted him. He kneeled before Catherine, kissing her hand. She then presented his younger troublesome brother, the Duke of Alençon, and then Henry of Navarre, saying that the two prisoners were his charges now to do with as he pleased. Henry Your dis- brothers are your prisoners. <laughs> Henry decided then and there to start his reign off with a clean slate, forgiving his brother and his cousin and granting them liberty so long as they refrained from plotting against him going forward. His sister Margot was present as well, and he greeted her with a very unbrotherly-like hug. So again, they have... Margot's so beautiful that like even her brothers are in love with her. It's weird, and it's... Yeah. Yeah. Um, what he didn't know... Was that Margot had also been involved in the plotting between Alanson and Navarre? Well, yeah, because she's like, fuck you all. <laughs> yeah. Fucked so, up my wedding. Unlike his two brothers before him, Henry was the first and last of Catherine's children to come to the throne of France as an adult. 
So at this point, Henry oh, is Henry is 22. Catherine de' Medici is 55. She was entering new territory with Henry's ascension. By now, she had a couple of decades of experience running a kingdom, both as a queen and as a queen mother and regent. What was her role in the government to look like now that her son was inheriting the kingdom as a fully capable adult? Fully capable, stretching it. Right? <laughs> <laughs> a little bit. <laughs> Catherine had her fingers in almost every pot of the kingdom. She was incredibly diligent and extremely hardworking, said to stay up into the late hours of the night reviewing administrative ordinances and reviewing news brought to the crown. She was not a woman who enjoyed limitless idle time. She liked to stay busy, even at the spry age of 55. Not me. <laughs> there was no Netflix at the time. Oh, okay. That's fair. <laughs> there were books. She also had every reason to be afraid of Henry. Not so uh -oh. much because he might cause any harm to her, but rather because of his vices and his tendency towards brash behavior. Oh, good. Great. Yeah. You mean like the murder, the planning of uh, murders of people? Yeah. That, that kind of mm -hmm. thing, yeah. maybe? <laughs> okay. So Henry III was also notorious for having favorites whom he called minions. Are you fucking kidding me? Well, it's mignons, but I think it's minions. Oh. Yeah. Huh. Just... Anyway. Sure. <laughs> These I'm were... not just going to think of all these people that look like the yellow minions. <laughs> Perfect. These were male companions that would end up occupying various positions in court and serve to instigate much of the drama we are about to cover in this Great. episode. Once he officially set off to create his new government, Henry acted on the advice of his mother and reduced the king's council to just eight men and the two bourbon princes of the blood. Is it mignons? Like mignon? Like flay mignon? Maybe. Mignons. 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 It's really fun to say, so now we're saying that. <laughs> Most of the council consisted of Catherine's counselors, signaling that he still had every intention of keeping the Queen Mother's council as well. Catherine also made several suggestions on how Henry should run his government and court based on what she herself had learned over the past three decades. Just as she had with Charles, Catherine counseled Henry to take the time to get to know his subjects and answer every petition in person. You mean he can't do what he did in Poland and hunt? No, but he does. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> she also advised Henry to open all correspondences himself and not leave their contents to be filtered by whoever happened to read them first. Yeah, that's smart. And, of course, she, she advised... He does. Oh, okay. So she advises him to be careful of the favor he showed his friends and not let any singular noble become too powerful off the king's generosity. So Stop giving away the Polish jewels. <laughs> <laughs> On top of that, um, she's basically like, we don't want another situation that we have with the Guise family, with any family becoming too important and powerful. Yeah. So like, Tedek, if they had listened to that, you don't need to give the all these dukedoms the out. Guy. Yeah. <laughs> yes. None of this would have happened. We all would have been dandy. But unlike his brother, his father, mm -hmm. and his grandfather before him, oh. Henry was not a king that particularly enjoyed granting access of the king's person to the public. Oh, In time, he would become a far more reclusive king that often employed fiscal barriers between himself and the people who visited his court. I mean, honestly, I understand that completely, but I'm also not royalty, so here we are. Yeah. It's <laughs> like, so you need to stand... 100 feet away and don't look at me i'd be like this is 99 feet what are you gonna do 100 somebody his one of his minions would come along and like lift you oh my god back up. But this is when the bar fight or the bar brawl happens in the, the courtroom as for Catherine, she had maneuvered and schemed to ensure that the people placed on his council were loyal to her 
Despite championing the idea that Henry be his own independent king, she still ensured that the only person the king would ever fully trust was his wise and sagely mother. <sighs> <laughs> now, one of the first major issues Henry contends with is the next round of French wars of religion. Oh, God. With Alan Sohn and Navarre kind of, sort of, kept hostage for good behavior back in Paris, the next major rival of rebel forces to emerge is Danville. So his name... No, it's not Henry. Is Henry. No, it's not. <laughs> Dema Morrissey. What do you do? What do you do in this time when every fucking person you know has the same name as you? you like, call, you're like, hey, Hen. You call them by their titles. Oh. So he is Danville. I can't say that. Signor? Signor? Senor? Senor. I think it's Senor. <laughs> Senor of Danville. <laughs> so we'll call him Danville. Um, so Danville was the son of Anne Demont Morrissey. Ah, uh, yes. Yes. And he is the cousin. Um, he was the cousin of Coligny. Okay. Um, but unlike his father, Montmorency, who had been fervently Catholic, Danville is Protestant and comes to oversee a new party that emerges during this period of the wars of religion known as the Politiques. Oh. So the politiques were made up of Huguenots and moderate-leaning Catholics who became disenchanted with the royalist faction following the events of the St. Bartholomew's Day Massacre. They champion a new form of religious moderation that allows for Huguenots and moderate Catholics to coexist. And they are strictly anti-royalist. So they're very much like, we don't like the royal family. That's fair. At all. Yeah, they yes. fuck a lot of shit up. <laughs> yes. Henry III had the opportunity to reach out to Danville to negotiate a prolonged peace with the Huguenot rebels, but is encouraged by Catherine and her hawkish military counselors to abandon clemency and regard all rebels as traitors. So that one guy, who, Maximilian, who gave you that advice, you kind of were like, just kidding, I'm not going to listen to it. Yep. <laughs> Danville Mom responds said. by commissioning new Huguenot and politique literature that serves as a propaganda smear campaign against the Royalist faction, and more specifically, Catherine de Medici herself, who is uh, viewed as the main calamity plaguing the Royalist faction. Of course. This literature is where we get the bulk of the stories about the evil sorceress queen from Italy, accusing her of every major atrocity that ever occurred during the wars of religion. I mean, she did have her hand in a lot of yeah. pots, so yeah. Yeah. They also accuse her of every sin under the sun, including witchcraft, alchemy, seduction, cold-blooded murder, bribery, and corruption. Those first ones, I would be like, thank you for noticing. <laughs> Catherine famously found an immense amount of amusement in the pamphlets, <laughs> often inviting her ladies-in-waiting to read them out loud to her for a nighttime entertainment. Yes. She was greatly amused by the exaggerations and even pitied the fact that the author never took care to reach out to her personally for <laughs> details. Oh, that's great. Because She's like, honestly, you can just call me. I'll give you everything because this is ridiculous enough. Exactly. Be <laughs> because however exaggerated some of the tales were, she often joked grimly that so much more had been left out of the tales. Okay, that's problematic. <laughs> <laughs> that was Catherine, though. I know. She just would look, look you, you in the face it, yeah. and be like, She's like, you're you right, play, I'm better at this but game. you don't know the half of it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> On the day that Henry III set out for his coronation, which was to take place at Rome's Cathedral, Danville announced that several provinces in southern France were breaking apart to form their own independent state. The Prince of Condé, currently fugitive of the French crown, was to be its figurehead and was already arranging to have Protestant troops from Germany aid Danville and himself in establishing this new state. Mm -hmm. 
the same time, during Henry's coronation, several ill omens for his reign occurred and deeply disturbed the superstitious population that gathered to witness the ceremony. So one of the things that happens is his crown actually falls. You mean the like 8,000 pound <laughs> crown falls off his head? No fucking way. It's uh-huh. not real. <laughs> On top of that, Henry has inherited the same sickly disposition as Francis and Charles. And he gets so fatigued by the five-hour ceremony that he takes a nap in the middle. <laughs> I mean, fine. Okay. But like, wow. <laughs> oh my god. Like, he's like, is I'm he, just is he fucking sleeping? <laughs> he's got his cloak. He's like, I'm just gonna <laughs> I'm just gonna wrap this around real quick. No, he the crown didn't fall. He lowered the crown. You're like, you know how people lower their hats but you can't yeah. see him sleeping? He's like, I'm just gonna lower this real quick. Oh no, it's falling. I'm gonna take a cat nap on now. Oh my gosh. <laughs> Following the coronation, a hasty wedding was arranged two days later for Henry and his new queen to be, Louise of Lorraine. Did she just pop up out of nowhere? Um, yeah, not that important. Oh, for the um, she is, she's like a distant cousin of the Guise family. So this is. Oh my God, you but, literally can't get away from the Guises. Okay. No, you really can't. They're wow. just, there's too many of them. Wow. Um, all you need to know about Lorraine is that, so the thing about Henry. She's the queen of France. <laughs> yeah. Henry had obsessions with various female courtiers. He was actually in love with the Prince de Conde's wife. I didn't talk about it. Oh God. The re- but she dies. And oh. the reason he marries Louise is because she looks like her. Oh, that's creepy. Yeah. Henry's just like ticking off all the creepy boxes. Yes. Like, don't oh, yeah. mess with this guy because he'll kill you and leave you in his basement. <laughs> probably. Probably make furniture out of you. <laughs> <laughs> but he's too lazy, so he probably will actually won't. <laughs> Catherine had been especially displeased with this marriage, having hoped to marry her son off to the daughter of a foreign king, which would have afforded France a much needed dowry and the possibility of military aid should it be needed. Following the marriage, the royal family made its way back to Paris, only to find themselves too broke to finish the journey. Whoops. Wait, so, what? Yeah, the treasury is still, oh, like, no. completely empty. You're like, guys, we're not even there yet. We're out of money. So it was up to Catherine to reach out to Parliament to beg them for enough money so that the royal family could make it back to Paris. Oh, my God. When do you just call it quits? So Paris... The city that once cherished the royal family now despised them. Yeah, they're like, fuck off. What little money the crown had was spent on Henry's lavish banquets and the favorites he spoiled. Right. As Henry partied and feasted, Paris often starved. Cool. One particular piece of graffiti found near the Louvre Palace embodied Parisian disenchantment as it read, King Henry de Valois, King of Poland and France by the grace of God and his mother, concierge of the Louvre, hairdresser and ordinary to his wife okay (laughs) wow (laughs) yeah paris does not like him i mean i remember paris is its own character too yeah yeah Yeah. no i got the eiffel tower in the picture (laughs) (laughs) the eiffel tower doesn't even exist but i didn't know how else to like draw personify paris (laughs) yeah Once court life had been resumed in Paris, Henry set about breaking up the strict bond that had developed between his younger brother, Alan Sohn, his sister, Margot, and her husband, Navarre, who he never truly forgave for trying to steal the throne away from him. Henry targeted Margot first, accusing her of adultery with several different lovers thanks to the scheming of his minions. To be She's f- literally like, it's fine. No, I mean, to be fair, she had many lovers, just yeah. not the ones that he accused her of 
Navarre famously stood by his wife and defended her, despite knowing full well that she took many lovers. Um, mm -hmm. Again, also because he's a known philanderer. They're both good openly <laughs> cheating on each it's other. It's an open marriage. It's not cheating if it's uh, open. I mean... <laughs> that'll change. Um, <laughs> Henry and Catherine both schemed to break up the friendship of Alanson and Navarre by employing one of the most famous members of Catherine's flying squadron, Charlotte de Bonne to drive a wedge between the two. Did you say flying squadron? Yes. So, oh. the flying squadron. Ironically enough, this is one of the things Catherine is most known for. And I'm like, it's it's cool. It's badass. But it's also like... Not much. <laughs> not that important. Yeah. Um. So, during the reigns of Charles IX and Henry III, Catherine's once strict observances when it came to the decorum of her ladies was abandoned. Known as the Flying Squadron, Catherine's ladies-in-waiting were encouraged to use their sexuality to exploit the men of the court and extract secrets from them. You told me this on our hack, yeah. and I was really into it. <laughs> so her Flying Squadron often featured prominently... But why were they called the Flying Squadron? Are they flying on broomsticks? Would you like sense? to find out? Because I'm literally in the middle of the paragraph. <laughs> should start off with this. <laughs> Her flying squadron often featured prominently during the court's mass balls and pageants as they performed various ballets for the court's entertainment. So they're literally like a squadron dancing around they're not in front of everybody. Maybe they were flying, okay? Maybe they there were, were strings flying. and rope. I don't they know. They were not on it's Paris. Then. I don't want to hear it. <laughs> it's Paris. <laughs> In, the, so yeah. in some of the stories, the Flying Squadron perform their dances half naked. Oh, no. Oh, no. These stories come out of a time when Catherine de' Medici's reputation as the Serpent Queen was at its height. Oh, my God. If you call me Serpent Queen, I'd be like, hi. <laughs> so um, it's entirely possible mm -hmm. they're exaggerations, but we do know for sure that Catherine was a master of optics. And if anyone knew how, to, how easily men could be manipulated by a woman's charms, it was Catherine. And in time, she used this to her advantage. The other thing about the Flying Squadron is they always had the most expensive gowns and they often dressed in like gold and silver cloth to like draw attention to them. And then you had Catherine in her black widow's attire. They're literally in the like center. a shiny object to draw yeah. attention. That's yes. awesome. Yep. But they also could have had such a better name. I'm just saying. <laughs> <laughs> now, one of these instances where she instructed a member of the flying squadron to perform some kind of thing for her is when she instructed Navarre's mistress to seduce both Navarre and Alan Sone at the same time. It literally could have been called enchantresses or something. I don't know. The flying squadron. Is <laughs> it's just too fun. late. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> to create strife, Henry instructed her to give her affections to both Navarre and Alan Sone so that their jealousy over her would turn them against one another. And it, end up, it ends up working. Oh, yep. <laughs> Men are so easy. Sorry. Now, while Henry seemed determined to drive a wedge within his own family, Danville and the Prince de Conde continued to gain more support for the Huguenot cause. Henry had succeeded in creating trouble for Alan Sohn a little too well. Eventually, an opportunity emerged for his little brother to escape his comfortable captivity in Paris and make his way to the politiques in the South. This was disastrous for Henry. As he had still yet to produce an heir, the rumors were already circulating that he was incapable of producing any children. 
It's likely that was actually true. I feel like that's probably the universe being like, we need to stop this. (laughs) As Alan's son was the heir apparent to the throne, this made him a dangerous rival. Any enemy faction, such as the Huguenots, could easily put him forth as a candidate to supplant Henry's position on the throne. So Alan's son is Francis. Yes. The youngest son. So he's he's a Protestant? He's not really anything. He's wherever it's convenient for him to get power. The worst kind. Yeah, that's not great. Yeah, a politician. Yeah. To give an idea of how little faith and respect the people of France had for their new king, Alençon fled with very little resistance as the, nobi- as the nobility had refused to levy their own local troops to pursue him and bring him back to Paris. Catherine was, once again, dispatched to retrieve Henry's troublesome brother. <laughs> Before leaving, she promised Henry she would do her best to hold off any demands her youngest son made, but she also instructed Henry... To levy troops just in case. She's like this goddamn fucking. <laughs> <laughs> Before you keep your shit together while I'm gone, I'm gonna go get your fucking little brother. <laughs> She's like done. She's just like this is Catherine's it. life now. Oh my god. <laughs> Before leaving, she also placed Navarre under strict house arrest and assigned fervently pro-Catholic guards to watch over him to prevent him from escaping. But it doesn't matter. He escapes anyway. Oh my god. <laughs> on a hunting trip. Oh, yeah. The, okay. The fact that you let him go hunting when you're trying to keep him from right? escaping. Yeah. He's like, I'm I mean, just gonna escape right here. Okay, so the great. thing, the thing about Alan Sohn and Navarre, Alan Sohn was the like face of the troublemaking, and Navarre was like the perfect captive prisoner. Captive prisoner. He. He very much placated to them in uh, order to survive again. He converted to Catholicism. So he, he was like the good behaving one. Is that conversion when you're forced to do it? Does it it is on out? paper. No. <laughs> <laughs> but <laughs> four years after his wedding to Margot and the St. Bartholomew's Day Massacre, he finally makes it back to the kingdom of Navarre. And upon arriving... Without he, his wife or with his wife? She comes later. Okay. <laughs> She's safe yeah relatively (laughs) upon arriving he immediately renounced the catholic religion yes he is 22 years old god fucking damn isn't that yeah (laughs) these these are children wow (laughs) this would prove to be an utter disaster for henry and catherine was smart enough to see the writing on the wall (laughs) with navarre and alanson both free the huguenot faction had everything it needed to march on the crown if its demands were not met So Catherine this time counseled Henry to make peace with the Huguenots, understanding his crown would likely be forfeited if he refused. Henry is, of course, annoyed because he's like, you're the one that pressured me to fight them anyway. I'm annoyed, too. Yeah. (laughs) Especially when you have that uh, advice in the beginning. At the time, they did have the upper hand, and then everything just... Yeah, but you don't always have the upper hand. Like No, but Catherine understands you never know what's gonna happen in the future. She's yeah. very shifty. She's very she's a survivalist. Yeah. So that's why now she's like the okay, odds fine. are not in our favor. Yeah. We need to make concessions. Yeah. Once again, Henry sent his mother to meet with delegates of the Huguenot faction to negotiate on the crown's behalf. From here, the Edict of Baloo was signed. It was a huge turning point for the Protestant faction and largely considered their biggest triumph so far. Isn't Baloo the bear from Jungle Book? <laughs> I think so, but this is spelled the French way. <laughs> no. <laughs> you just said that I automatically thought it was a bear. Lots of E's, lots of U's. <laughs> French Protestantism was officially recognized legally on par with Catholicism. Gaspard de Coligny and the victims of the St. Bartholomew's Day Massacre 
were officially rehabilitated and the massacre itself was publicly condemned and recognized for the terrible crime it was. Literally, if you had just done this in the very fucking beginning, you fucking assholes, none of these people would be dead. Probably. <laughs> Pensions were paid to the widows and orphans okay. of the massacre yes. for the next six years. It doesn't help, but it's good. The treasury <laughs> is empty, though, so where are they oh. getting this money? And, and, the it, is where they're getting it. and a number of new territories and titles were afforded to the Huguenot leadership. Henry had to give up his dukedom of Anjou and all its pensions to his brother, Alan Sohn. We'll keep calling him Alan Sohn. <laughs> <laughs> While Navarre and Danville both were also afforded new land titles and pensions. It was a huge loss for King Henry. His only saving grace was the fact that he got to keep his crown. But his it was wife. said... It was said that he cried when he signed the treaty and vowed vengeance against his brother. I guess he's not sleeping. (laughs) That's later. He takes a nap after. Catherine would suffer the consequences as well. Henry refused to talk to her for two months and he would never fully trust her again. I'm just thinking Catherine's like, thank fucking Jesus, that's all it took. (laughs) But it's her favorite son. I mean, you can have a favorite son and still hate your favorite son. Just saying. (laughs) He sounds like someone who could be easily hated. Equally unhappy with the Edict of Ballou were the fanatical Catholic factions around France, who abhorred the notion that heretical Protestants be regarded as anything other than subhuman. Wow. Just as the Huguenot faction had regained power and popularity by organizing around the country and finding leaders to champion against the crown, so too did the ultra-conservative Roman Catholic faction. In time, they formed their own party known as the Catholic League. Like the Huguenots, they equally despised Catherine de' Medici, especially now that she had negotiated this peace treaty to maintain some semblance of order in France. Especially now that she's not murdering people for having a different religion? Yes. Cool. Yeah. Yeah, they don't like her. Awesome. They even had a champion of their own. Guess who? It's gotta be a Henry. It is. Fuck. Who's our third Henry? (laughs) No, I remember. The Duke of Guise. Oh. (laughs) Yeah, so the young Duke of Guise. So again, Henry is the son of the late Catholic hero and patriot Francois de Guise. Uh-huh. It was their intention he to died remove. The massacre, right? No. How did he die? Didn't de Guise die of the massacre? Nope. He died before then. Oh, he was assassinated by Coligny. Duh. Yeah, you're right. You're right. <laughs> but we aren't sure if it was Coligny. We're not sure, but like, you know, probably. <laughs> I mean, that that assassination like triggered the. Um, blood feud between Coligny's family, the Chatillians yeah. and the Guise family. Yeah. Who didn't have a blood feud with the Guise family? Right. <laughs> so it was their intention to remove King Henry III and replace him with the Duke of Guise, who had his own very distant claim to the throne as he was a descendant of Charlemagne. So his claim goes back like hundreds of years. Yeah. Okay. This is the freshly escaped one? This is the Duke of Guise. No, he was never there. What the fuck? The ones that escaped were Navarre. Oh, you're right. Okay. <laughs> Just kidding. It's so many Henry's. Is, I understand the aggressive. confusion. That's why I drew you a map. <laughs> you did, but I can't read it because it's so small. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I forgot to bring it. If there was anything that could reunite the Valois brothers, it was the threat of another being put on their throne. And so, Alan Sohn once again turned cloak and returned to his brother in Paris. From here on out, a series of scuffles and fight between Catholic and Huguenots would break out across the country, triggering another 
war of religion. Yep. Alan Sohn even led the Royalist army against the Huguenot army and employed his own devastating tactics against Huguenot strongholds. At one of these strongholds, he was said to have instigated the murder of 3,000 Huguenot citizens. Alan Sohn would never again be trusted by the Protestant faction. Yeah. By this point, France had suffered through six wars of religion. When another peace was secured, it fell to Catherine once again to set off on another tour of southern France to meet with Huguenot leaders, pacify unrest in their regions, and ensure that the Edict of Ballou was being properly enforced. At what point did you as a citizen, and either a Catholic or a Protestant, hear about peace and go, yeah, no. <laughs> like... Fair. Yeah, like... Well, I mean, this eventually, hundreds of years later, leads to the French Revolution. Yeah. Everything has its roots. Jesus. Yeah. But, like, we're six in, guys. We're six mm -hmm. peace treaty talk thingies in. Well, and, you know, some of them are fighting because of religion, and some of them are fighting because they just want power, and who suffers? Uh, the people who are not fighting. Yes. <laughs> Paris. Yeah. And the various towns in France. Now, 20 years ago, Catherine had set off with the whole of the court to do much the same thing and ensure the Edict of Amboise was being honored in all areas of France. Remember that? Yeah, I remember the parade. <laughs> For this tour, a 59-year-old Catherine set off mostly on her own with a small contingent of guards and a couple of members of her flying squadron for company to yeah, do the same thing. they're broke now. <laughs> yeah, huh. I mean, they're broke and it's also like Henry's not going to go because he doesn't trust anyone. Much had changed between then and now. Catherine was the evil Italian queen responsible for the St. Bartholomew's Day Massacre. She was largely regarded as an enemy of the Huguenot cause and no longer held the love of her people. Ouch. <laughs> so she sets out on this 18-month journey. 18 months? Knowing full well the danger it posed to her physical person. She would travel a countryside that was starving, fending off multiple plagues, ravished by war, and openly hostile to her. Many towns flat out refused her entry. Wow. But it's a testament to Catherine's strength of will, tenacity, determination, and charm that she took care to do the thing her son never could. She met with each town's leadership face-to-face -to, -face to hear out their grievances and work on solutions. I mean, good, but are you going to follow through? <laughs> I mean, she's in this moment committing to. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> She's basically there to be like, who is not honoring this edict? Let me know and I'll fix it. Yeah. Yeah. Even though she kind of instigated it. But, you know. I mean. <laughs> <laughs> now, in one particularly hostile situation in the city of Rennes, Catherine found her carriage besieged by two rows of soldiers pointing arquebuses at her face, often bumping muzzles against her carriage. That's problematic. Catherine carried on unflinchingly until she was delivered to the leadership of the city. This display of dauntless courage earned her the respect of the townspeople of Rouen. She left the city much the same way she had left the other cities and towns of southern France, instilling a newfound respect with several enemies new and old, and often even a begrudging sense of affection for the reviled and scandalous matriarch of France. Interesting. Whatever respect Henry III managed to command from his people at this point was almost singularly thanks to the resolute and steely character of the Queen Mother. So remember when I said that she wasn't you're like you're like oh she didn't know if she was gonna be needed because her son was an adult yeah <laughs> here we are basically always gonna be yeah yeah because <laughs> he can't do anything yeah. 
Now, when she finally returned to Paris 18 months later, it was in triumph. It was in triumph, and she was greeted by a cheering and ecstatic Parisian crowd. The tour had been a success. The Venetian ambassador wrote the following. She is an indefatigable princess born to tame and govern a people as unruly as the French. They now recognize her merits, her concern for unity, and are sorry to have not appreciated her sooner. Uh, you have had reason, but um, <laughs> but they do see she's the yeah. only one that's actually putting herself like trying. physically in harm's way yeah. to be like, what is wrong? What can we do to fix yeah. it? She's doing the only job. one. She's yeah, doing her job as this... ruler of the country. Sorry, but before you move on, <laughs> what the fuck was that word? <laughs> <laughs> Indefatigable never heard of that i have not either and i struggled through it you did and i i heard it and i was like is that real it is okay she's basically saying she's you can't fatigue her yeah 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 she's unbreakable despite the success of the tour catherine did not suffer from any illusions she knew the peace would likely be short-lived and wrote to her son this warning you are on the eve of a general revolt anyone who tells you differently is a liar oh wait didn't someone say that before no, probably <laughs> many a time yeah she's basically saying like look i put a band-aid on the country but yeah but it's a fucking it's duct tape it's not gonna yeah, prepare like yeah people are unhappy understandably yeah. so and you are useless so <laughs> he is yeah the next couple of years for Catherine were filled with more family related drama involving henry alan Sone, and margot when it came to Margot, the never-ending soap opera primarily involved her marriage with Navarre. The two had married out of necessity to mend France's religious wounds, but had never managed to find any love with one another. The most they managed was an occasional friendship when it suited them and mutual protection whenever Margot's brother threatened either of them. Honestly, like, how, how do you form any kind of bond when your marriage was... Yeah, that's fair. <laughs> Overshadowed <Yeah>. by a massacre. <laughs> Navarre had also openly been unfaithful, though he did not receive any of the same reprimands his wife did from her family, even though they were equally guilty of adultery. In time, this lack of matrimonial loyalty began to weigh heavily on Margot. Catherine wrote to them both often. To Margot, she urged her daughter to remember her duty as a wife and as Queen of Navarre, and offered herself as an example of a good and obedient wife a woman was expected to be. I have so many issues with that, but go ahead. (laughs) When she wrote to Navarre, it was to chastise him over skirmishes between Huguenots and Catholics, often instigated by the latter, and remember his loyalty to France. In one letter she wrote, My son, I cannot believe that it is possible you wish to ruin this kingdom and your own if war starts. You will find yourself alone, accompanied by brigands and by men who deserve to hang for their crimes. Whoa. <laughs> when it came to Catherine's youngest son, Alanson's drama fell into two categories. One being marriage and the other a starvation for glo- glory and power outside the shadow that his kingly brother cast over him. So guess who Alanson's primary marriage candidate is? Oh, <sighs> Somebody not great. Queen Elizabeth of England. Oh shit. Yes. Oh, okay. Yeah. But, but she she likes to like hold off on yes. like, very long engagements. <laughs> so um Henry had previously like 
I was gonna say, wasn't she engaged to someone else? Yeah, the, she's engaged yeah. to like everybody. And Henry was like mad about it, like, yeah, you're the engaged to the Queen of England. Like, yeah. So Henry famously like snubbed her, but Alan Sohn actually like they had this sort of cute little relationship. He actually gets to court her in person. Oh, she calls okay. him my little frog. Oh, that's unfortunate. Well, yeah. I mean, I understand why, but like... So Elizabeth was notorious (laughs) for, like, giving insulting little, like... Pet names. Pet names to her people. She's like, my little frog, and (laughs) Francis is like... She's also, like, 25 years older than him. Yeah. (laughs) Well, at least... At least the tables have turned, okay? <laughs> so Alan's son was woefully out of his league when it came to Elizabeth, yeah. who likely never had any intention of marrying him, but teased him often and openly about the prospect as she had so many men before him. Oh, I love it. Alan's son's military ambitions were as vexing for Elizabeth as they had been for Henry and Catherine both, the latter of whom often chased him around France to keep him from engaging with Spanish forces in the Netherlands. Oh my God. So he basically, he's like, I want to fight. I want glory. I want to make a name for myself. And Catherine's like, you will start a war with Spain. He's literally like the youngest kid in the group of bullies wanting to be the biggest bully and just going up to people like 10 times bigger than him and be like, let's fight. Basically. (laughs) But in the end, Alan's son would be his own undoing, sadly. Sadly. Catherine's (laughs) Catherine's <laughs> troublesome and often restless youngest son suffered from the same perpetually sickly disposition as his older brothers before as him. every single brother in this family. Yep. <laughs> it's likely that his constant military campaigns ran him ragged, and in time he started to exhibit the same early signs of tuberculosis that had claimed his brother Charles. Allenstone ended up dying on June 10th, 1584, at the age of 29. Wow. It's another of Catherine's sons that she has to bury. Oh, no. Despite the never-ending headache he had provided her, Catherine was devastated by having lost yet another of her children. Yeah, she's allowed to be devastated for losing a child, no matter how annoying. (laughs) She would have even more cause to worry in the next years that followed. Henry had failed to produce any children. Uh Uh-oh. The death of his youngest brother and heir to the throne of France meant that the next in line to the Catholic French throne... Was the Prince of the Blood! was his heretical bourbon cousin, Henry of Navarre. Wait. Margot's husband. Isn't he king of... King of Navarre. Oh, God. Again, with the single thrones. (laughs) Interesting. He's now the heir. Oh, no. (laughs) Not great. No. (laughs) Not great. So now we enter what I like to call, and what history calls, the War of the Three Henrys. Oh, God. (laughs) So this is a war between Henry of Guise, Duke of Guise, Mm -hmm. King Henry III of France, and Henry of Navarre, King of Navarre. You ready? Nope. Okay. (laughs) So the French wars of religion had somewhat died down over the past couple of years, but that all changed after Alençon's death. The Holy Catholic League had openly thrown their lot behind the Duke of Guise for years, but it was only after Navarre was officially recognized as the heir of France that Guise decided to officially answer the call and lead the Catholic League himself. Because they're both on opposite sides, right? Yes. Catholic and, and Protestant. Yep. And then you got Henry III, who's like, he's, he's like, uh, he's Catholic, know. but like. He's Catholic in name. He is Catholic. He's just not fanatical like okay. Henry of Guise is. And he's friends with Navarre. Yeah. Yeah. So. So he's the best of the Henrys. <laughs> <sighs> I'm not saying he's great, I'm, but he's I would the best say the of best the of the Henrys is Navarre. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah. 
Okay. Yeah. Okay. Guise even reached out to King Philip of Spain, who was all too happy to promise aid if it meant destroying Navarre and the Huguenots, <laughs> and even better if it meant supplanting the current Valois king with the ultra-Catholic Guise. This had been the Catholic League's goal. So now they're oh, at the gosh. point where they just want to completely usurp the throne. It's not even about religion. Great. Mm-hmm. I mean, this family has caused enough <laughs> issues. So. Now, when it comes to the three Henrys, for King Henry of France, we've mentioned he loves Navarre like a brother, even though they occasionally fight. He hates Guise. Okay. This is his ultimate rival. Yeah. He hates everything I feel about like him. You should call them with a passion. Catholic Henry, neutral Henry, <laughs> Protestant Henry, <laughs> neutral Henry, not neutral. Neutral ish. <laughs> it's Guise, King Henry. I know Navarre. <laughs> I'll mention the Catholic and Huguenot thing every now and then, just for you. Oh man. Um. So part of the reason Henry hated Catholic Guise. <laughs> was partly because he still had a grudge that Guise had tried to seduce his sister Margot all those years ago. Remember that? Oh, yeah. Yeah, this is him. Mm-hmm. Um, and also just because he found the Guises to be annoying. On? Oh, okay. <laughs> well, y- y- yes, that's yeah. part of it. He didn't need a huge reason. He just yeah, doesn't no. like the Guise family. That's fair. <laughs> Which is fair. <laughs> yeah. Henry... Not many people do from the sound of it. <laughs> Henry initially announced Navarre as his heir... But over time, the pressure put on him by Guise and the Catholic League got to him. Oh, no. By now, they had incited rebellions all over northern and central France, um, taking up arms and literally taking cities by force. That's not great. Nope. Henry is also deeply hated by Parisians, who were fervently pro-Catholic and would have preferred Guise on the throne and Henry's place if they had their way. So basically, the Duke of Guise is the Parisian darling prince. Okay. They love him. Okay. Facing down the barrel of a gun, Henry publicly barred Navarre from the line of succession and is forced to sign the Treaty of Nemours, which effectively revoked all previous treaties that granted Protestants rights in the country and effectively banned Protestantism altogether. Okay. We're not learning. We're just going in circles. Well, now now the League is in power. Yeah. So it's just, it's a power trade-off. I know. But no, we're not learning. (sighs) Navarre was predictably unhappy, and so the wars of religion start up once again. But Navarre, you also had your own throne. <laughs> <laughs> yes, but at the same time, um, to circumvent the legal line of succession yeah, is okay. it sets a dangerous precedent. Then anyone, then you can get the wars of the roses. That's mm-hmm. how that came up. There mm-hmm. wasn't a strict line of succession. I mean, even if there is, we still fight over it. Yes. Well, here we go. Yeah. (laughs) So since coming to the throne, Henry did whatever he could to gradually limit Catherine's power and push her out of her advisory role. But with the country descending into chaos yet again, he grants her full powers to negotiate with both Guise and Navarre on his behalf. Catherine steps up graciously, despite being in her mid-60s at this point and suffering from perpetual illnesses that constantly leave her bedridden, including fevers, chest and ear infections, and her ever and always present gout. Oh, no. Yes. (laughs) She's like, can I please retire? Can I be done with this bullshit? (laughs) Catherine meets with both Guise and Navarre on several occasions. With Guise, she greeted him as a matronly grandmother. When they met, she would often, like, Invite him in, like, oh, take your shoes off. I have some soup. We'll talk about the kingdom later. 
Oh God! Um, she treated him like a child. <laughs> yes, she did okay. very deliberately. Yeah, I love it. Navarre was another issue altogether. In addition to fighting for his claim to the French throne and leading the Huguenot forces, his marriage to Margot had completely deteriorated at this point. Uh-oh. Both were openly unfaithful to one another, but Navarre had taken on a new mistress that proved as ambitious as Diane de Poitier had been. Oh no! This mistress's name. Don't you dare. Is also Diane. Back off. <laughs> oh my God. So Margo completely loses it, attempting first to poison her husband unsuccessfully. Oh, girl. And then to shoot him. That... Also unsuccessfully. No. Oh my God. <laughs> so I mean, honestly, understandable, but girl, at try this... for success. At this point, Navarre finally boots her completely from his kingdom, and Margot spends the next couple of years relying on the good nature of friends that will deign to have her. You mean shooting at your at your husband is like the last straw? It's like the final, like, yep. nope, we're done. And that marks her complete and total fall from grace. Um, after she's booted from Navarre, she never, ever again sees Henry or Catherine. Oh, wow. They never meet again. Okay. One of the more... Does she just, like, fade into obscurity or, like... No, we'll come back to her. Okay. One of the most nefarious stories about Catherine has her allegedly offering to have Margot eliminated so that Navarre can remarry and hopefully get himself an heir. Um, Seeing as how the two could no longer stand to be in the same room with one another and have no children. Yeah. Yeah. The last thing that happens of import as all of this is going on, Mary Stewart... Queen of the Scots has been captured by Elizabeth and has been in England for over a decade now. The English Protestant queen had been reluctant to kill her cousin because one sovereign killing another sets a bad precedent that even Catherine de' Medici herself was reluctant to set. That all changes when Mary Stuart is implicated in a conspiracy to usurp the throne from Elizabeth and forces her hand. Catherine dispatched one of her advisors to England to plead clemency for her former daughter-in-law, but to no avail. And on February 18, 1587, Mary Stuart is convicted of treason and executed. Not great. As a member of the powerful Guise family and a Catholic sovereign herself, the Scottish Queen's death lights a fuse across all of Europe, enraging the Catholic population, including those in France. Doesn't help that Elizabeth is a person. Nope. Because that's all we're going to focus on. Mm-hmm. Not anything else. Yep. <laughs> Great. I'm going to start using like actual dates. Okay. Um, because a lot's going to happen in a very short amount of time. So by May of 1588, the atmosphere in Paris became increasingly volatile with people openly organizing in the streets. Uh-oh. They had little reason to love their king, but now they saw him as a mostly ineffectual monarch ruled by his favorites and grossly out of touch with the people he supposedly ruled. So like, most monarchs. Some people even like suspected him of having a hand in Mary's death. Interesting. Just, I mean, it's one of those things where like you yeah. hate him, so you're going to blame him for every bad thing that happens. Yeah. That's okay. The Catholic League gains more power and controls the entire northern half of France. The southern half is controlled by the Protestant Huguenots. So France is basically split in half. Okay. Like almost completely. So like. <laughs> Oh, this whole time. <laughs> yeah, but like more but so like than ever. more distinctly. Yeah. The League makes a new list of demands. Um, and in these, they say that the king has to join the League himself. What? 
non-leaguers, including moderate Catholics, are barred from holding senior offices of state, and a holy inquisition is to be introduced in France to eradicate heretics. Non-leaguers, like it's a fucking cult. Yep. Oh my god, great! <laughs> You're in a cult. Call your dad. Call your dad. <laughs> By the time Catherine arrives in Paris in May of 1588, all semblance of order has deteriorated. Why is that word that so word hard? That word is very hard. <laughs> and an angry mob is forming in the streets and prepping to march on the Louvre Palace to capture the king and kill his supporters. Shit. Yep. Okay, this is getting aggressive and out of hand. This mob is incited by soldiers of the League that have been smuggled into the city to incite another St. Bartholomew's Day style coup. No, it didn't work out well last time. The pressure of it all has gotten to Henry, who has become increasingly mistrustful of everyone around him, including Catherine. Wasn't he already pretty mistrustful? Yeah, but like even more so than ever. He's like paranoid. paranoid. Yes, completely paranoid. Even as the denizens of Paris were preparing to march on the capital, Catherine was a woman of conviction and iron will who refused to stop doing the very basic things she had done all her life. So there's this famous story of her where she... Um, insisted on attending Sunday Mass despite the fact that the city was, like, under siege from within. Mm -hmm. And in this story, Catherine ventures out into the city and climbs over the barricades that had blocked the streets. Yeah. Oh, gosh. The very same people who had been preparing to march against her son could not help but be reluctantly impressed by the sheer determination and fearlessness fearlessness she displayed. Yeah. Like, she's just completely grim face, not showing any fear whatsoever. Like, I'm gonna attend Mass. But the moment she gets to the church, she basically cries silently throughout the entire service. Aw. Like, understanding Mm -hmm. her son is losing his throat. Yeah. Pretty quickly. In the end, it fell to Catherine to try and restore some semblance of order to the city yet again. <laughs> she reaches out to the Duke of Guise in hopes that his presence would serve to pacify the city, um, pretty much understanding the only person they will listen to is their darling Catholic prince. Yeah. When he arrives in the city, Parisians are noticeably relieved, but Henry is outraged, first by his presence and later when he learns that Catherine had invited him to the city. When all is said and done... Henry ends up fleeing Paris and becomes a fugitive in his own country. He leaves behind both his queen and Catherine. We understand now this was part of the plan. Yeah. Um, to take charge of the capital and to continue to negotiate with Guise and the Catholic League on his behalf. And for them, the fact that he has fled the city, like they're trying to stage a coup, but you can't really do much of a coup if you don't have the king's physical person. Yes. So their plan is completely just Oops. nicked. Yep. <laughs> Catherine is and has always been a preservationalist, understanding that sometimes one has to make gross concessions in order to live and fight on another day. But by now, she has to know that the future for her son, his reign, and her legacy is very grim. And we get her state from one of her letters that she writes during this time period. It would be much to his credit if he were to come to terms in whatever way he could for the present. For time often brings many things which one cannot foresee, and we admire those who know how to yield to time in order to preserve themselves. I am preaching a sermon, excuse me, for I have never been in so much trouble before, nor with less light to see my way out of it, unless... God puts his hand to it. I do not know what will happen. Well, that's depressing. Yeah. (laughs) Yep. Jesus. (laughs) Henry is once again forced into adhering to a new list of demands from the League. In the Act of Union in Paris, he is forced to name Cardinal de Bourbon, 
Henry of Navarre's Catholic uncle, as his legal heir. He also names the Duke of Guise as the Lieutenant General of France. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> Another major dramatic event is happening on the European stage. King Philip II of Spain has put together a huge Spanish armada to attack England and Queen Elizabeth in response to the execution of Mary Tudor. What was their hand in it? Um, like it's what, what, in response to like killing a, a Catholic sovereign. Oh. And he, he doesn't need any excuse. That's true. He, he wants, wants to. Support. Have you ever heard of the Spanish Armada? It's one of the most yeah, yeah. famous fights in English history. Yeah. yeah. So that's this happening right now. All right. As the League and Spain are already officially allied, the League has also allowed northern ports to remain open to the Spanish while they prepare their assault on England. For Catherine, who had spent half her life fending off potential war with Spain, the knowledge of these ships is another source of immense anxiety. It would be the same for any French Protestant as well. Yeah, the world is imploding. Well, not just that, but like the catholic champion yeah. is in your port with all his ships and guns yeah. yeah but as fate would have it spain suffered a near impossible and crushing defeat by queen elizabeth her navy and winds favorable to the heretical english virgin queen consequently enough for france the tides of fate were also shifting as well partly in response to elizabeth's success oh oh yeah because it's a protestant it's a protestant victory protestant. That's what I was trying to say before I got tongue-tied. <laughs> Emboldened by this turn of events, Henry called a meeting of the Estates General at the Chateau de Blois. Blois. Do you remember Stephen of Blois? Stephen of Blois. <laughs> so Stephen of Blois, um, our hated enemy from God, Empress we're coming Matilda. Back full circle in this well, episode twice he, now. he was from the um, the Duchy of Blois. Yeah. And that's where this castle Blah. is. You can't so say it any other way. Blois. 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 <laughs> <laughs> so they're at the Chateau de Blois. Um, <laughs> where he's been staying since he fled Paris. Oh, okay. This is now September of 1588. Once the court had assembled, including the Duke of Guise and his faction, Henry unceremoniously dismissed all of his counselors without any warning. Oh, shit. Like, dismissed for the night or dismissed forever? Forever. Oh, shit. He's like, I will no longer be listening to you. You'll remember these are all like, men. Like, including his mother? Because wasn't his mother her these are all men that Catherine put in place around him. Oh, no. Yes. So, Catherine's like, can you not? You're already fucked. Like, stop it. No, this, <laughs> he is effectively abolishing all of her power. Oh, no. Yep. That's rude. For everything <laughs> your mother has done for you. So the queen mother had been completely blindsided by Henry's plans, having been sick in bed with a lung infection. Oh, shit. But Henry had finally taken his mother's advice from all those years ago when he made his journey from Poland. He was finally to be his own master at long last. Oh, I feel like this is going to end so badly for him. <laughs> During the meeting of the estates, Henry makes a grand speech. He publicly thanks his mother for her decades of service to the crown. She was not just the mother of the king, but the mother of the kingdom of France, and it was time for her to rest. <laughs> Catherine sat blank-faced to Henry's side on the dais, silently suffering through the pleasantries. Wow. Henry also openly antagonized his rival, the Duke of Guise, who sat near the dais, publicly remarking that some of his nobles had formed leagues against him despite his kingly kindness, and that he intended to pay them back in kind. Oh, no. The remarks proved inflammatory enough, and it wasn't long before the politicking and the scheming started up again. 
During one particularly ill-fated dinner in December of that same year, the Duke of Guise, the Cardinal of Guise, who's his his brother, uh-huh. not named Henry. <laughs> oh my god. <laughs> and their sister, the Duchess de Montpensier, were overheard toasting the Duke as the next King of France by a court musician. No! When word reached Henry, he decided he had finally had enough of the obnoxious Guise, and he set about plotting the Duke of Guise's assassination, set for the date of December 23rd, 1588. That is very specific, and I feel like it's going to fail. Guise's spy network immediately heard word of a plot hatching, though they did not have the details. Guise immediately sought Catherine out, knowing that if anyone had any chance of quelling the king's temper, it was his mother. She's like, did you not hear him publicly dismiss me just now? (laughs) Catherine was by now completely bedridden and sick with a fever. She invited both her son and the Duke of Guise to dine with her in hopes of smoothing relations over between them both. And much to her relief, it seemed to work. Both Henry and Guise were said to have gossiped and joked with the sick Catherine to help lift her spirits. Oh my god, literally a sickly woman is running the kingdom better than the two dumbasses involved. Cool. They even parted with a hug, and the king's amiable disposition managed to convince Catherine and Guise both that his temper had been pacified. Despite all of this, (laughs) Guise continued to receive warnings from courtiers, allies, and even his own mother that the king was planning to kill him. But an arrogant Guise repeatedly said the king would not dare and brushed the warnings off. Okay, do you remember in the beginning of the story and then like in the middle again and then like (laughs) further on in the story? And then like half an hour ago? Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) And then on December 23rd, 1588, a morning that was reported to be especially dreary and raining profusely, The Duke of Guise answered a summons to meet the king in his bedchamber to go over some important business related to the kingdom. Oh my god, is the king going to do it himself? So as the Duke of Guise is walking down the corridor leading to the king's bedchamber, eight members of Henry's personal guard nod him off and circle behind him. Anya's losing her mind. (laughs) I am too. As the Duke of Guise enters the bedchamber, he sees eight more members of the king's personal guard waiting for him. As he turns to run away, he's blocked by the other eight who followed him in. Exactly. That's exactly what happened. Exactly. He screamed just like that on you. (laughs) And then as Guise entered the king's bedchamber, he was ambushed by Henry's personal guard, known as the 48, and stabbed in a manner reminiscent of Julius Caesar's assassination. Wow. The Duke of Guise died at the foot of Henry's bed. Henry allegedly rose from his bed, stood over Guise's dead body, and sneered, look at him, the king of Paris, not so big now. Eight members of the Guise family were then rounded up and imprisoned, including his brother, Louis, the Cardinal of Guise. The next day, they were all killed, and both Louis and the late Duke were hacked to pieces and then thrown into a fireplace to burn. What the fuck? This was Christmas Eve. Oh my god! Jesus, Rachel, one of these days I would just like a story that's just (laughs) lighthearted and happy with some rainbows! Well, (laughs) god... Catherine was informed the next day of the assassinations. There are a couple of different accounts of her reaction. One suggested that she was too sick to speak, but her somber face suggested she fully understood the gravity of what it all meant. I believe that one. 
Another more dramatic version worthy of a Shakespearean play has Catherine making the comment that instead of being a king, her son had lost his kingdom. Yeah. On New Year's Eve, a very sick Catherine made the great effort of dressing so that she might attend Mass. She then visited the Cardinal de Bourbon. Again, he'd been named the Catholic League's heir to Henry. Mm -hmm. He was imprisoned as well. So she visits him and she cries and she promises him that the king means him no harm and he'll be free soon. You can't promise that. Bourbon sneered at Catherine and shouted at her. It is on your word that we came here and you led us to this butchery. Catherine fled from his cell in tears. Wow. In the end, she would not see the end results of her son's vile plot. Catherine's fever returned a few days later and on January 5th, 1589, her body finally gave out on her. And she died in bed. Wow. As word began to spread of the butchery of the Guise family, Catholic France became inflamed once more and Henry lost the support of the League. The country descended into chaos. Predictably, Catherine's previous nefarious exploits lent to the belief that she too had been an accessory to the murder of the Guise family. Parisian leaders threatened that if her body was brought to the capital to be buried with the rest of her family, they would drag her corpse through the streets and then dump it in the river Seine. That's a little aggressive and also kind of sacrilegious, but who the fuck am I? Catherine would end up buried in an unmarked grave in St. Sever Ch- Churchyard for 21 years until her late husband's illegitimate daughter finally had her remains recovered and moved to the St. Denis Basilica to rest with the rest of the Valois royal family. That's shitty, but happy at the end. <laughs> Catherine de' Medici's remains were interred in the Saint-Denis Basilica in Paris until 1793, when a revolutionary mob dug up her bones and tossed it in a mass grave with the other kings and queens of France. What the fuck is wrong with people? No. Well, they were starving. That's what was wrong with people, and they were tired of the monarchy. Jesus, it's fair, (laughs) but stop digging people up. In the end... King Henry would end up reuniting with Henry of Navarre, and the two would end up putting together a plan to take back the city of Paris together. But Henry's hubris and vile actions would end up coming back to haunt him. Eight months after the death of Catherine, he would be stabbed to death by a Dominican friar by the name of Jacques Clement. A friar killed him? hmm He was very fanatical. Okay. And Henry was known to... Um, welcome anyone of the church. So when this guy came up to his group, he was like, yeah, I want to meet the king. He was like, yeah, come on in. He was, I think, sitting on the toilet when he was stabbed. No. Mm -hmm. On his deathbed, Henry called the king of Navarre to his side and had his advisors pledge their loyalty to his new successor. On August 2nd, 1589, King Henry III officially died, thus ending the line of Valois kings that had reigned in France for 300 years. Henry de Bourbon, King of Navarre, would go on to become Henry IV of France and the first in the line of kings from the House of Bourbon. Catherine's ill-fated prophecy from all those years ago had finally come true. Let's listen to prophecy, people. The last remaining Valois had been Margot, who had still been estranged from both her mother and her brother at the time of their deaths. When Henry de Bourbon became King of France, he granted Margot an annulment so that he'd be free to remarry. Margot negotiated a nice little pension for herself and finally found the freedom she had always sought. She would continue to make to take many lovers, live very comfortably, and ironically, 
attain the freedom she'd never gotten from her family. Wow. At least there's one happy fucking ending. On top of that, she and Henry became friends. Of Navarro? Yeah. Okay. Her husband, her ex-husband. They become friends and she ends up like alerting him to plots against his own life. Wow. Okay. In the end, Catherine lived through the reigns of five different Valois kings. She came to France at the age of 15 as nothing more than a wealthy merchant's daughter. And by the time of her death, she was one of the most powerful women to have lived in the 16th century. Similar to Cleopatra, Catherine was a woman who understood that power often existed in the trimmings that a monarch wrapped themselves in. Cleopatra and Catherine were two sides of the same coin. Master chess players in a game of royal pageantry and theatrics. They crafted the image they wanted to present to the public right down to the most finite detail and then endeavored to embody every aspect of that image. Catherine de' Medici crafted herself in the image of a widowed mother that would do anything to protect the lives and legacies of her children. And she would do both great and terrible things to protect the people she loved and the legacy of her family. But perhaps more so than any other difficult damsel we have covered on this podcast, Catherine de' Medici was a bag of contradictions. She was not a woman to be pigeonholed into any singular stereotype. Some saw her as a dark sorceress. Others saw her as a conniving politician. Catherine was at times amiable and charming, so skilled at the art of politicking that she was one of the few people who could float between enemy camps and find enough common ground to form a truce. She was unyielding and unshakable, courageously staring down the barrel of a gun on more than one occasion and earning the oft-reluctant respect and admiration from her many enemies. But Catherine de' Medici could be equally stubborn and inflexible, especially if she perceived a threat to herself or her children. And because of that stubborn insistence on the preservation of her children's legacy, she could be terribly short-sighted and an accessory to untold violence and bloodshed. In the end... Henry IV, of all people, probably said it best. I ask you, what could a woman do, left by the death of her husband with five little children on her arms, and two families of France who were thinking of grasping the crown, our own, the Bourbons, Mm -hmm. and the Guises? Was she not compelled to play strange parts to deceive first one and then the other, in order to guard, as she did, her sons, who successfully reigned through the wise conduct of that shrewd woman. I am surprised that she did no worse. Wow. That, wow. I that came from thoughts. Navarre. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Yep. And that is Catherine de' Medici. Wow. That, that's a strong ending. <laughs> when Henry of Navarre took a second wife, it was a woman by the name of Marie de' Medici. What? Wow. A distant, like, cousin um, or whatever. Yeah, yeah. Like niece or second niece. That's so crazy. Mm-hmm. Dang. Yeah. All right. So a couple of random facts about Catherine de Medici. I want you to pull up Did your you? phone. Yeah. There were some pictures I included. There's a picture of Henry, uh-huh. her son. <laughs> There's a picture of Margot. That's Henry. Yes. That's Margot. Oh, she's pretty. She's very Look pretty. Look at them pearls. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, she was very beautiful for her time. Yeah. Okay, so, like a true Medici, Catherine was notorious for her many building projects and love of architecture. She took great care to select her own architects, subscribing to the Medici idea that the best way to be remembered was through the art and architecture you left behind. Yeah. (laughs) During the later years of her life, she even had her own palace constructed in Paris. This palace was known as the Hotel de Lorraine, 
In order to construct it, she had several buildings in Paris in Paris in, <laughs> in Paris demolished. In addition to the garden she was already known for, the new palace was like a living photo album. She had portraits of her Medici ancestors, her father-in-law, Francis I, and her late husband, Henry II, and all of her children, grandchildren, nieces, nephews, and favorites all installed in a room so that she might be surrounded by them. Villain, (laughs) villain though she may have been, no one could deny that Catherine de' Medici was also a sentimentalist. She's a family woman, for sure. In addition to portraits, the palace housed a large collection of crystals and minerals from around the world. Yes. (laughs) Games such as chess and miniature billiards, collections of china and Venetian glass, creepy dolls, (laughs) and books. Why is there always got to be a creepy doll room? (laughs) Lots and lots of books. So she had her own little personal private library that consisted of 4,500 books and 776 manuscripts. What? She even had a couple of papyrus scrolls from the ancient times. Maybe even from like Alexandria. Oh my god. Her favorite subjects were said to include history, classical works, philosophy, mathematics, and of course, astrology and books on the occult. I read about mathematics. (laughs) Like book numbers. (laughs) Pull up your pictures. Um, That's the St. Bartholomew's Day Massacre. They had a couple paintings. Go to the very end. So in the very chateau, <laughs> in the chateau de Blois, Blois, there's a little area known as Catherine's Chamber of Secrets. What? And where the panels open, that's where it's said she kept her poisons. Like a Isn't it? I'm just gonna open this secret panel and pull out my bottle of poison. Nobody <laughs> look. <laughs> my sources for the last four episodes are Catherine de Medici, Renaissance Queen of France by Leone Leone Frida, and Wikipedia. Yes. And there you go. There it is. I love it. Fuck yeah. That was very aggressive. <laughs> <laughs> the French are very aggressive. Yes, like the French soap opera. You think the English are aggressive? <laughs> the French? The French? Yeah. Um, Jeez. <laughs> Henry IV will later be assassinated as well by a Catholic fanatic. Oh, come the fuck on. His son, Louis XIII, takes the throne next. After him is Louis XIV, the Sun King. I'm sorry, they had two kids named Louis or like... No. Okay. <laughs> I think Louis the Fourteenth was like... So Louis the Thirteenth reigned for a really long time. Yeah. Like 40 years. Um, so Did you just say four? 40. Oh, I was like, least. that's not... A, I mean, yeah, yeah, time. I believe he came to the throne as a child. And then same thing with mm-hmm. Louis the Fourteenth. He came to the throne as like a four-year-old. Oh, no. Because everybody just kills everybody in oh, France. Like God. literally all yeah. of them have been assassinated. <laughs> Yeah. So, yeah. There we go. That is, yeah. You have been listening to a difficult dance. A difficult (laughs) dance. Because you always put a weird (laughs) emphasis on the beginning. (laughs) If you have any suggestions for future episodes or would like to correct me on my speaking of the French. Fuck off. You can't can't correct us. (laughs) You can reach us at difficult.danzels at gmail.com. We're also sometimes on Facebook and Instagram (laughs) when Kat focuses and gets her shit together. Um, and next episode, it was going to be Mary Queen of Scots, but I've decided to give myself a break and do Jean the Queen. Jean the Queen! It's going to be a little easier for me. <laughs> yes. So. I love it. And then we'll do Mary. Jean yeah. the Queen. <laughs> Jean the Queen. Um, 
Why is it so much fun to say? <laughs> We're going to be saying that You're going to hate me next no, episode is what you're saying. Jean the Queen. Jean the Queen. <laughs> Get the Huguenot side of the story. Oh, man. Yeah. Stay difficult. Yeah. But not... Don't kill people. But not quite. Catherine don't kill people. Yeah. Difficult. Yeah. There's levels you shouldn't cross. <laughs> Maybe don't assassinate entire families. Yeah, we don't do that. <laughs> Jeez.